lost the weight upon my shoulder. Now it's easier to walk. I can see the road before me. I am not afraid to fall. Hey everyone, thanks so much for listening. If you enjoy this podcast, it would really help us out if you could write a review wherever you listen, share it with a friend and give it a star rating and click follow or subscribe in whatever app you listen in. All that really helps us out. And also, if you are not following us on Instagram and Facebook, you can follow along at beautiful shifts underscore podcast. And that's where we share our current and upcoming episodes, photos of our guests and other fun content. So thank you. Yep. Thanks. All right. Uh, welcome to the podcast today. We're excited to have with us Terry Olson, and she is friends with Karen Cushenberry. So Karen was on our podcast a couple months back, and she also shares a story about losing her daughter to a drug overdose. It was a powerful episode, and we had a lot of people reach out that resonated with that, and we're so grateful that Karen would share that story with us, as well as Karen's daughter, Holly, that shares her perspective of um, losing her sister to a drug overdose and the foundation that she has down out of Las Vegas called Second Chance. And it's a really awesome program that they have a 5k every year and they do different things throughout the year to raise money and awareness for drug addiction. And so anyway, we're happy to have you here. Thank you very much for having me. I'm so excited for this opportunity to to share my story and and also to highlight some of the things that I am involved in. Awesome. Okay. Lindsay will read the bio. All right. In the summer of 2014, Terry was a wife, mother of a blended family of three daughters and one son and a grandmother to four beautiful little girls. She had been a business owner and enjoyed a successful career as an interior designer, which was a passion throughout her life. She was serving on the board of her professional organization, the American Society of Interior Designers, when she got to work closely with students in the study of design. This was the life she'd signed up for. What many weren't aware of was their only son, Dane, had been struggling with substance use issues since he had been injured in an ATV accident in 2006 at the age of 17 and became addicted to the painkillers he had been prescribed. Their family was naive and unprepared for the journey that this would take them on. And sadly, Dane would lose his life to an accidental overdose on November 23rd, 2014 at the age of 25. After many months of working through grief and trying to understand why, she began to look for the ways that their story could make a difference in positive ways for others who were facing similar challenges. It has become Terry's commitment to raise awareness and be a part of the solution to the current opiodemic in our country while helping families in crisis. In 2017, she began leading a parent support group called Changes and is grateful for the tools and support it gives family. She feels that maybe something she has learned might give one precious soul the power to win day by day, small actions can create big rewards. Yeah. I love that. I'm excited to hear more about what you have done. I know that you've helped Karen so much. So it's amazing that you can help so many families just by speaking out and sharing your story. And so, yeah, yeah. Um, before we get into that, um, you sent, I actually loved what you sent. So we were kind of wondering if you could tell us something about you that kind of gives a taste of you and you shared a little story with us. So we'd love to hear that. Yeah, it's always, where did I start? Where did all this begin? And I grew up in Oregon. Um, I was in that flower power, uh, children of the universe era of of time. And um, our our family was kind of unique because my parents were very, very young when they started their family. And um, because of that, they you know, financially didn't have a lot of money, but they would buy small properties and my mom and dad would work as a team to fix them up and make them cute. And I remember my mom sitting for hours, sewing curtains and putting up wallpaper and, and then they'd get the house fixed up and then they'd sell it and then they could work into another property. And we did that. Um, I was thinking back and it seemed like we moved about every five years throughout my life. So the concept of moving, build, you know, living in a house forever. (laughs) I just didn't understand that because we, we had a lot of fun. Well, I only had to change schools one time during all of this. So we stayed in the same area and eventually they worked up to um, building their own homes and they, 
they built three custom homes um, together. Um, and through that process, I, I'm the oldest of seven children. So during the process of um, all these different remodeling and rebuilding, I got to be um, my mom's companion and drug around to paint and wallpaper stores and picked out light fixtures and, and developed a love for the process of design at that time as I saw it in practical application. And it's sad because there wasn't HGTV or anything at that time because my parents could have totally been the Chip and Joanna of that time. They had this perfect partnership of my mom was the creative element. She visioned things. She'd sit with stacks mm -hmm. of Better Homes and Gardens magazines and tear out the ideas that she liked. That's awesome. And she had a, a tablet of graph paper and a ruler and a pencil, and she actually drew out the floor plans and stuff without any real practical knowledge other than just, you know, having worked through it. And then my dad was the technical side and he would, um, he would make those things happen. So on the custom homes, they, they subbed out um, different things. And my dad has also a large family and a couple of his brothers were sheet rockers and there was a plumber and an electrician. And so it was just a, a fun um, family project. Um, but it really, saw how you could totally change the environment that you were in with simple um, changes in space, color, texture, textiles. And so that was the direction that I went when I was trying to decide, you know, what, what kind of career. I knew it would have to be something in the arts because that was sort of my gift. I was always labeled the creative one. And for many years, I thought that was kind of a, um, a booby prize. <laughs> like, well, everybody yeah. else got great, great talents and great gifts, but I'm the creative one because mm -hmm. I'm clumsy. I'm not athletic. My siblings were all very competitive and very athletic and always wanted to have ball games and stuff. And then it was this, dilemma of what to do with Terry because <laughs> Terry couldn't throw the ball. Terry couldn't run. Terry, <laughs> Terry was actually kind of afraid of the ball. So, <laughs> so I got to be scorekeeper or, or way outfield. And they all prayed that the ball would never go out there because they knew if it did, I couldn't catch it. I couldn't run with it, you know, anyway. So, yeah. but I did learn that being creative had, had some, um, some value that people, other people weren't creative. I just assumed everybody was creative and I didn't have any of the other talents that other people had. But so that's just kind of, you know, a little bit of background of where, where I got, you know, into the, the design. And, that's yeah. such a cool and, story. Um, <laughs> my that. schooling, um, I, I moved from Oregon to, to Utah to go to BYU. And that's where I met my first husband and had my my daughters, and then we divorced. And ten years later, I met my current husband, who is also a Provo boy. So mm -hmm. I am pretty much a Utah girl who will always be from Oregon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it sounds neat. like it. Yeah, nice to have a little bit of you know, di like I don't know if diversity, but just a different background growing up somewhere else and then coming here. I think that's nice. And, and it's cool that your parents were so into it. I mean, I feel like that was yeah. probably a bit unique at the time to have, you know, your mom working and, and I just think it was really cool that she showed you that she could use her passion in those ways. And it, it transferred to you or, you know, you saw that. So that was really neat. That's awesome. So with your current husband, did you guys have kids together or did he bring kids to the marriage as well? So I had my two and he had a daughter and then we had our, our son together. So mm. um, that's where, you know, kind of this story starts with a sad ending. Um, we um, had this beautiful little boy who was, he was, he belonged to everybody and he was kind of the glue that brought the various pieces of, of our family together. He was 
a joy and active, um, full of life, funny, and um, just like I said, just a, just an absolute joy um, throughout his life. And he brought a lot of color to it too. Mm-hmm. Starting in kindergarten, when we'd go to parent-teacher conferences, we'd learn what our son was telling his teachers about <laughs> his family. We we learned that the Olson twins were were his cousins. Oh, that's <laughs> and awesome! And that he had was going to arrange for them to come visit his class. You know, and oh, I love that. And um, <laughs> my husband and I were are are certified divers, and we've been on you know several diving trips and. And one of the diving trips, my husband thought it would be funny to tease me with a shark. There was a, a nurse shark on the bottom, and he went down and kind of um, wiggled its fin and stuff. And I wasn't very happy about that. But somehow that transferred to our son, and that was him diving, and that he was diving with sharks. And oh, oh that's <laughs> awesome. Know, so he had he an had imagination. A, a very, yeah. very vivid imagination. And, and a, a great storyteller. Sometimes his stories were, um, you know, <laughs> a little fanciful. A exaggerated, yeah. <laughs> That's so cute. His um, older sisters, his closest sibling was four years, and then um, four years, 10 years, and 13 years. So he would joke that he really never had a sibling. He just had four mothers. <laughs> yeah, it probably seemed that um, way. <laughs> but, but he was adored mm-hmm. and packed around and um, sometimes dressed up. But he was, he was patient and good. But as he got older and, and more, um, more active, he was a skateboarder and a snowboarder and was basically kind of fearless. We had lots of trips to the ER for stitches and bumps on the head and, and things. Um, nothing too serious until the day that um, I got a phone call. And I was working in my office and I got a call on my phone and I looked down and I'm like, hmm, I don't recognize that number, but I answered it. And I hear this voice, mom, you've got to believe me. I broke my leg. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, I believe you, but where are you? Because right. <laughs> it was a school day, you know, and it was barely time for him to have been out of school, let alone have a, done something where he could break his leg. And so he gave me the directions to where he was, which was right across the street from his high school on Alpine. I pulled up to the the accident scene and I wasn't prepared for for what, what I was seeing. I mean, nothing in his conversation led me to believe that it was serious. I'm thinking I'm going to go pick him up, load him in the car, go to the ER, get some x-rays, see what the deal is. But when I pulled up, the ATV was laying on its side and he was still laying in the gravel, kind of propping himself up on his elbows. And his whole right side was road rash covered in dirt. His pant, were shredded and soaked in blood. And the first thing I noticed was his foot was turned around backwards. Oh, wow. And mm-hmm. my brains just start. So I'm just, I just grabbed my phone. And I started dialing 911. And by this time, the mother of the boy that owned the ATV that they were on was there. And she was kind of puzzled that I was calling the police. And she offered to help me get Dane in the car. And I'm just like, there's no way how I, I, don't, I wouldn't even know how to attempt that. So the ambulance came and they stabilized him at the scene. They cut his pant leg off and I had kind of lifted it up and looked and, and knew that that was going to, you know, it was something that needed immediate attention, but I didn't know the scope of it until I saw how mangled his leg was and what had happened is they were in the foothills, came up, went up a hill, came down the hill, kind of turned the vehicle and it flipped it over on its side. And then it continued down the hill about 30 feet with my son's leg underneath. And oh. it, it almost, almost severed his leg. It crushed it. And we went through a really long day. Um, they transferred him 
from one hospital to another hospital because they didn't have the, the trauma um, orthopedic surgeon and um, actually signed a waiver giving permission to amputate his leg because they weren't very optimistic that they were going to be able to save it. And, wow. and at that point, our son wasn't even in a place where we could have a conversation with him. They basically induced a coma. Um, and I'm thinking he's going to hate me forever. He's right. going to wake up without a leg. And, and, you know, and, and it was, it was, um, I said, it was a long night when the surgeon came out and said, well, we've tried this experimental thing and we'll see how it goes. Um, they basically put a titanium rod in his knee and in his ankle. And then they just took mesh and wrapped all the broken fragments around the, the metal, the metal rod. And, and then his leg had the, the wounds had to stay open because there was so much trauma to his muscle that they couldn't close the wound. So it was, wow. it was really, really horrific. He was in the hospital for 10 days um, and in, on a uh, drip system with the pain meds and went through a couple more surgeries. And then for, for two years, we were in and out of different procedures on his leg. And then finally the, the surgeon said that he felt like that it was healed. His leg still, it felt like the trunk of a tree. We thought, well, when they put that together, it'd be like a little jigsaw puzzle. All the pieces would fit nicely and cleanly together, but that wasn't the case. So there was, there was kind of holes and bumps and, um, but he could now put weight on it and, and resume activity, which he missed the whole um, last half of his senior year of high school oh, wow. because this happened in November of, of that year. And um, he eventually um, took classes at Mountainland Technology to finish high school. And he did that. And um, they decided to take the rod out of his leg because he was so young that they felt like there was concern if he were to have another accident like that with the rod in there that they wouldn't have had an option, but, you know, to amputate. And, and so it, everything seemed awesome. Like, like the worst was over, but that's when we started to learn about um, what had been happening over this time with the pain meds that he'd been prescribed and, and taking, which um, were very needed, but we just weren't, educated about them when it um, was time that he, that the prescription stopped coming. We just assumed that you start taking Tylenol or whatever. And, uh, you know, that, that's a whole story, just the depth of at that point in time, what was known and understood and what was talked about. I, if there's anything that I feel that's positive that's happened in almost we're eight and a half years now is that doctors are having those discussions. I walk into a hospital now and I see a big sign that says um, opiates, um, you know, can be addictive after, you know, seven days and, and talk to your doctor about alternatives and, um, there's much more um, awareness, much more education. And I think because of myself and Karen and, and a large group of other mothers that I've become associated with to um, take the stigma out of talking about these issues and get down to what we need to do to fix this problem and to recognize that these things happen in every household, in every socioeconomic group, every faith base, um, race, religion. There's nothing that um, addiction um, doesn't doesn't reach. Yeah, and yeah. that was, you know, the day that I sat in an emergency room and uh, our son had had a seizure in front of me and. I was um, very um, just, you know, what, what is this? And, and took him to the doctor and 
that's when they explained withdrawal to me. And that's when they explained, you know, that these kinds of medications are things you can just stop. And mm. like, well, how, how would we you know that? Know yeah. that. It, yeah. Can I ask, was this when his um, prescription ran out the first time? Because like you said, his prescription ran out and maybe his body just wasn't prepared for the withdrawals. Right. Has he yeah. been on it right. so This long? was after, you know, after they removed the rod and kind of okay. gave him the all clear and, you know, we were done with, with the medical procedures and he had his last um, prescription and then that ran out. And, mm-hmm. and we just thought that's how, that's how it ended. Went through numerous different types of um, weight, you know, so just, I, I was clueless even where to start. The emergency room doctor gave us some information about a clinic in Provo and we went there we did outpatient, inpatient, and finally he um, he did go to a, a 90-day rehab for the addiction. It takes so many um, pathways. So first, you know, that was the realization of the, of the addiction, which was really hard for my husband and I. I remember, you know, explaining it to him, and the first thing he looked at me kind of puzzled, and he says, are, are you saying our son's an addict? Because that was so out of context for anything, you know, well, he, he's not, you know, all he, he's just a kid. He, he's not one of them. And yeah. Like, well, and he had had this horrible accident. So you're like, yeah, well, these are things that he needed to get him through yeah, that. So that time. would be so hard to reconcile that jump. Yeah. And then you know, through some of the, the um, advocacy th- things that I've been involved with, I've learned that, um, you know, as high as 90 plus percent of people who are experiencing addiction started with a legitimate prescription mm-hmm. through a surgery or an accident or a procedure, wisdom teeth, for example, getting tonsils out, all of those things. Some people's physiology is more prone to, the, to addiction. Sometimes it's the, the quantity over the period of time. There's lots of different factors, but the one thing that um, it took a long time, I think, for for the medical community to come to grips with is the physiological changes that the drug makes in the brain. Uh-huh. And that the focus that a lot of people have on getting you off the drug was almost kind of secondary to what happens what else needs to happen to get someone's brain healed from having had those substances for so long? Because it replaces the chemicals that the brain used to make itself. When it's getting it artificially, the brain stops making them. And then if you take them off the drugs and the brain's like, uh, wait a minute, <laughs> what, we gotta, yeah. what are we going to do here? And it, and it literally is, you know, a, a, a sensation of life or death in, at that moment. The best analogy that someone gave me to help me understand it was having someone push your head underwater and holding your head underwater. And all that you can think about is how to get the next breath of air that you need. And that's kind of how the brain affects someone in addiction it's not that they're trying to get high or or have fun. They're just trying to not be sick or not feel like right. they're going to die. Yeah, I am. I had no idea that ninety percent yeah. of addicts start with painkillers. Although everyone, almost anyone I know that has had an addiction problem, it did start with painkillers. You know, yeah. yeah. And it makes me so nervous because my son just got um, shoulder surgery, and I was like. Yeah, let's just not even take these. Let's just go to the, the ibuprofen, you know, first. And he got like a nerve block. So I think for the first few days, he's like, mm-hmm. I don't need the, you know, painkiller. Right. I'm fine, you know, because you hear so many stories that that is exactly where it mm-hmm. starts. And you don't know if your son or, you know, or you are going to be the type that, like you said, yeah. that may be more predominant to addiction, but also just that, that your body, yeah, relies on this for, these different, I don't know. I didn't know some of these things. So yeah, the chemical thing is really interesting to me. And that makes actually so much sense. And 
anyway, I'm going to have to read up more about that. Cause I, that's just interesting. Yeah. To me. And I think it helps yeah. with the stigma. Like you said, like thinking, Oh, well just stop. Like, why can't you just stop taking these? Why would you want to yeah. be addicted to these? Like sometimes it's just not, like you yeah. said, I just want relief, like relief from being my head underwater. I just need some relief. Mm-hmm. And it's probably just like you said, if their brain stops producing chemicals that it needs to produce and this replaces it, if they stop taking it, they're going to feel very off balance. Yeah. I mean, want to put their, whatever, like, so it makes total sense. I mean, and it does yeah, make it's me a really good way frustrated to with the medical community. Like and, how can you and, not know that? And, <laughs> yeah. And physically sick. And, and we certainly don't have enough time to go into all the details on that, but there's a book um, Jason Coombs wrote called unhooked. And it's probably the best book I'm aware of for going into the, you know, the physiology and things of addiction, but also him explaining how his life was taken over by addiction and that his mom, dad, and sister also write sections from their perspectives. Did you have Jason on? No, but it's podcast? Funny, I, I know, but I feel like I just listened to his, that sounded so familiar. Yeah, I feel like I just I mean, he must've been on a podcast. Oh. Yeah. He's been on several and he has, he has a um, recovery YouTube channel and, and, and he has Brickhouse Recovery and, and he's very, very active helping people out of their addiction. So, but, but his book is, it's just very common sense and it breaks it down where someone who's never had any exposure or any experience with an understand not be judgmental or punish someone for an illness or a situation that they're in that they didn't really choose and yeah. yeah. Anyway, so that's an, enough of that. But what I kind of wanted to touch on was during this time, how hard it was for me as a parent to get information that was helpful to me to know what to do. Yeah. And and even, you know, just the simple thing is, well, we'll just take him up to the cabin for a week and, and get him Detox off of him. everything yeah. and, <laughs> and then we'll be good. Yeah, we'll detox him and, you know, then we'll be done, right? And and that seemed reasonable, but then, you know, I start learning other things and I'm like, well, if, if it's that easy, then why are there all these rehabs and why, you know, why doesn't everybody, you know, because getting them off the drug is really the easy part. You can confine them. You can, you know, put them in a situation where they, they can't get the drugs anymore, but you can't rewire their brain in five or six days. And you can't provide them the life skills and the social helps and all the other things that go along with it. And science now is, is showing that it's about a two year process. Oh, wow. And mm-hmm. and there's very guided steps that need to be taken during that period of time. So, so when, when I get this diagnosis, I guess, you know, that, that he's addicted to these pain meds, then I start, okay, what do I do? And I got such strange responses. Well, it's not your problem. It's his problem. Like, well, like, he's my son. <laughs> I love him. Yeah. He's my son. And and by now he's, he's 19. He's not a minor anymore included in a lot of the discussions with the physicians and stuff anymore. And um, um, somebody suggested I go to um, AA meeting or, NA meetings. And so I went to a few of those with my son. And if, if you haven't been exposed to that culture before, that can be very shocking as well. (laughs) The AA program is an amazing program. And I have um, great things to say about it. But you do kind of have to be aware when you go into a group of, of addicts or alcoholics or things that when they share, sometimes they share really personal hard things and sometimes the language is a little rough things that I wasn't you know as prepared for um but the one thing that always kind of bothered me and you would feel the compassion and you would feel the camaraderie I guess and the sense that you're not alone in this that there's a huge community of people who are also um struggling but the what do I do when I leave this meeting? Either there's the steps to work, and those are helpful. But you're 
in those kinds of meetings, there's not crosstalk, which is, you know, interacting with each other, like ask questions, sit in, in you know, and, and talk about it. And you don't interact outside of the meeting. You, you take a confidentiality pledge. And even if you were to run into somebody like in the grocery store, you're not supposed to acknowledge, oh, I saw you at, you know, or hi, how are you? Mm. It's supposed to be, you know, just what stays, what's there stays there. I just had the sense that there had to be some kind of direction and help for me, my husband, my my other children who were affected by this too. And there are certain aspects of addiction that are different than another illness I don't know of any other illness where people are driven to criminal activity to to get their medications or um, lying to the degree that that they do because of the desperation and they've been cut off from something and now they're being treated like a lesser than you know you're a low life because you're an addict because you take these awful drugs and and heroin, you know, to me, the first time I heard that, I was like, those are rock stars and people who live on the street, you know, that, I mean, that heroin is actually the very same thing that Mm. people are being prescribed. It's just not um, regulated and you can't, um, you don't know what kind of dose you're getting but it's also available on every street corner in every community for $10. And to get the other medications can be hundreds of dollars. So it becomes a matter of availability. And and I was thinking while you were talking, um, well, a few points that you've made that I just wanted to like address. The one is the education. Like at the beginning, you were saying you didn't know what to do. No one told you what to do or how to do it. And I'm glad that the medical um, field is realizing more of these things to know how to help and to guide people in this. But I think the stigma is so big, like you're saying, like, but if you're educated and even your husband and your daughters and your son in all the ways that can be helped either before it even happens, all of us. (laughs) And then if you are prescribed a painkiller or if you are someone that gets addicted to it, it's just um, so hard because I do think we're taught like, oh my gosh, they're a drug addict and it's very degrading. It's very, yeah, like you're saying, like they steal and they live on the streets and they're prostitutes or whatever. You know, you have these like things where Mm -hmm. most of the drug addicts we're talking about, like you were saying, 90% or whatever, like they start out like they're very functioning human beings. They're very kind, nice people. Like, and little do we know, but some of these people that are on the street probably started out that way, yeah. you know, that they were really good, nice people that were just trying to live just their normal, life. Regular. Yeah. Yeah. And it made me think of that. Did you ever read the book or see the movie, the beautiful boy? Yes. Um, and I, and I didn't have mm-hmm. a lot of experience. I, my father-in-law is been an A for 30 years and he loves it. It's his community. It's his spirituality. Mm-hmm. And I'm very grateful for that. Um, And that's kind of my only experience a little bit with addiction. And when I read that book, I mean, it's so, it's from the dad's perspective. And so you get this, Mm -hmm. it's so hard because you're, you love your son, but you, like you said, they turn into someone like, who is this person that's lying to me to get drugs and is Mm -hmm. not the person I believe them to be, but to understand that there is some changes in their brain. I don't know. It's just, anyway, I think it's important, like the education of, and most stories that we have on this podcast, it's all about sharing stories to be educated, to, to create some empathy, to mm-hmm. help others and to be there for others. And so, yeah. And just give people that perspective. Cause that can make all the difference, mm-hmm. like to just understand what, what this experience the under, is like. The understanding. Yeah. Mm-hmm. is huge. Yeah. And, and seeing it from a perspective uh, other than what, they're doing to you, but seeing it as what's happening to them and yeah. what can be done. Yeah. Not only, you know, for that particular person, but yeah, there's something that you said that 
I kind of made a connection for the first time and I might just be slow, <laughs> slower than everyone else. <laughs> but you, you know, first you kind of told us about, and I'm kind of going back to this, but how it changes the chemicals in their brain. And then you used, you know, this is a disease and I'm trying to remember how you said it exactly, but you know, that just is different kind of than any other. And I know I've heard addiction talked about as disease, but you know, it's always kind of like hard to understand that. Well, how is it a disease there? You know, I think our tendency is to be like, yes, they're addicted, but they're choosing it. But to me, I just made the connection. Yeah. People think that, but I just made the the connection. Well, it's changing their brain, like the chemicals, how Mm -hmm. they work in their brain. So it is a disease just like any other, almost like mental illness or something. And to me, that just brings me, gives me even more empathy and understanding for it because it's like, it changes everything so much that then it becomes a disease. So that's how I think we can just kind of like destigmatize it and realize that is what it's doing. It's altering their brain chemicals. And so all of a sudden it is a disease. It's not just a choice. It's like they have this disease they're fighting. It could take, like you said, two years of completely being clean for maybe their brain to start healing itself or however that works. But anyway, I think it's easy to say, oh, well, just like you said, let's take them to a cabin and don't do this for seven days and then you'll be fine. But if your brain is not ready for that and cannot function yet without time and it's, yeah, Mm -hmm. it makes you have a little more. There was another thing that you said in there that um, I chuckle about too, is is we, we talk about clean and dirty and things like that. And only in addiction do we ever make those associations. Yeah, we don't tell somebody who's a mm, diabetic that who, they're dirty. Who, who eats, a piece, eats a piece of cake or something. Oh, look at you. you and, yeah. Um, yeah, there's so, so much you know, shame there. there. Those associations yeah. and, and the, using non-stigmatizing language Words, for yeah. it to, you know, if, if they relapse, you know, if someone in, has cancer and relapses again, we don't. Mm-hmm. look at them with anger and shame we say Have, oh yeah empathy you know, and yeah what's yeah, the next step we need to take mm-hmm. yeah. in in your you know in your health journey so when i um started attending different meetings and posting a lot on facebook so whatever um feelings people have about social media, I found it to be um, a wonderful tool for me to get information and for me to share my story. And because of being so open and sharing so openly, I, I was contacted by people really all across the planet after our son passed away. And um, one of the comments that, that really struck me in the early part of it was we included in his obituary that he died of a, of an overdose. And I had people who were kind of stunned that I would share that. And um, that how that was so brave of me. And I was puzzled by that response because to me it was how my son died. And if we didn't talk about it, how could it get better? And, yeah. and that's what so many people reached out to me because they didn't know someone else like me who would talk about it that they could talk to because they were going through it and they didn't know who else to talk to because they didn't want anyone to think less of them or of their loved one because of what their family was going through. And I got one of the people that reached out to me was living in Singapore at the time and had a son who has struggled with addiction And she had another friend that lived in Singapore who was from Washington state originally. And she told her that they were starting this little group in Singapore called changes. And she gave me a little information about it. And eventually I was invited to Hong Kong for the Asia area women's conference. And at that conference, this woman gave a breakout presentation on this parent support group called Changes. And I was sitting in the congregation. And as she was talking, I literally could hardly stay in my chair, because everything she was saying connected. And I'm like, Oh, my gosh, I need to know more about this. And so 
afterwards, I, I went up to her and I, I says, I, I have to know more about this. I have to know how to um, get in touch with, with these people. And so I did eventually um, reach out to the board president at the time and explain to her, you know, my situation and, and that I, I had so many friends who desperately needed this kind of support and this kind of education. And they were a little hesitant at first because they'd always just kind of kept it in their little area in, in the Seattle, Washington, um, three or four chapters in, in that area. And she wasn't sure how to have it come to Utah and how they would do oversight and all those things. I'm like, well, you've got somebody in Singapore who's doing it. I mean, that shouldn't be so hard. Eventually, I got permission, and they they sent someone out here with the materials. And the woman who had given the uh, presentation in Hong Kong actually ended up moving to Provo. Her um, daughter came to BYU, and they bought a house here. And so she co-taught it for me taught it with me for the first month. But what it, what it was, was a series of um, educational um, presentations and then a group meeting. So to, for me, it brought those two aspects together of learning about how to create the environment where we can maintain a relationship with our loved one who's struggling and changes initially wasn't designed just for um, substance use. It was for anything that, uh, that was causing conflict in the home. The problem is in today's world, many families, that's what's causing the conflict in their home is someone they love that's being um, that's involved with substance use in one form or another. And um, the thing that I was a little uh, disappointed to learn was that this this had been going since the 90s and they had just kept it to themselves all this time and I'm like do you know how much help this could have been in my situation and so we started having weekly meetings in the um, Utah County area and it kind of grew and I had people coming from a long distance. I had people driving from from Heber, from Bountiful, from all kinds of different places. So I started doing some Zoom meetings then, especially in the wintertime. I was nervous about someone driving so far just to come to the meeting and then to sit in a two-hour meeting and have to drive all the way back. When COVID hit and we were trying to figure out what to do then, and I said, well, we've been kind of using this zoom format and it, it worked. So we started doing some zoom meetings and, and what that allowed us to do then was to make changes available anyone to anyone anywhere. So we have four different meetings every week now, um, Saturday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, Saturday was the morning and then Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday are in the evenings. And, we have people in all four time zones that attend now because there's no limitations. You don't have to have a physical location. You don't have to have someone right. to lead the meetings. Um, and, and so th- that um, has been a huge blessing to many people and in growing to learn the things that they need to know in order to, be a positive and helpful to their loved one and not go down the road that most of us as parents end up in with the best of intentions, you know, words like enabler and codependent and all those things. When people started using them with me was really frustrating because I had no context for that. I didn't know what they were talking about. What do you mean? enabling him I'm trying to keep him alive what's you know how is that how is that a bad thing or you know this codependent well yes I was I I was I was consumed with what to do about my son and how how to keep this person I loved 
from disappearing right in front of my face or turning into this monster that I couldn't stand anymore. And we had some horrible exchanges. And then people will ask me, well, how does it benefit you to do these meetings now? It can't help your son anymore. It can't change what happened. And, and that's where I, I feel really grateful to have something that I can share with other people that gives meaning to all of the things that we went through and all the experiences and the things we learned along the way to um, better position someone else to not have to go through that or at least to understand that they have control over only one person and that's them. And when you make the changes in the environment that someone lives in, then they have the opportunity to also make changes or at least to see the behavior that you want them to have. If we're as manic and crazy as they are, you know, we can't, we can't help anyone else if we're not well enough to be able to do it ourselves. And that's what um, the focus of changes is, isn't to change your loved one. It's to change yourself, your, the way you interact and, um, your mental and physical well-being so that you can be a positive and um, healthy part of their life. Um, So each meeting is constructed with a a 30-minute educational piece, which is mostly communication-related, how to have effective conversations, how to avoid useless conflict, how to... um, disentangle yourself and unmesh yourself from what they're going through. I mean, if, if you take a book and you hold it up to your face, you can't read it. You can't, you have to get it far that far enough away from you that you can see the words on the page and process them. And sometimes that's what happens with our loved ones. We are so close. We are so enmeshed that we can't be objective, that we can't see Hmm where the dysfunction is and having that, you know, objective point of view with a peer in your group that can help you decipher that and and help you understand the difference between disengagement and abandonment. And when someone would say, well, you've got to just, you know, you've got to kick them to the curb. You've just got to let them hit rock bottom. You've got to do all this stuff That, that, that didn't ever feel right to me but helping them understand the responsibilities they have in their life and allowing them to experience consequences and also to um, learn the rewards of being self-reliant and things that we sometimes start doing too much for them when a child is sick, you know, we bring them chicken broth and we, we sit and we put cold cloths on their head and stuff like that because we're, we're trying to help them get better. But sometimes we have to step back and look at what are we doing that might be keeping them from being able to get better. And like yeah. I said, it's always with the best of intentions, but until you recognize in yourself what it is that you're doing, it's it's a really hard, it's a really hard knot to untie. But once you have it shown to you in, in, a, in a way that it makes sense and logical, it, it's so empowering and so liberating. And the relationship gets so much better. We get so focused on taking care of it right now and enforcing what we think is the right thing on someone that sometimes we take away their ability to find it for themselves, if that makes any sense. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, for sure. And I love that how you explained that the changes is really about the parent 
And, um, but then that can affect the kids so much, but I just can't even imagine how hard that would be like being in that. Cause of course you're going to want to do, but I loved the book analogy you used too, when you're seeing it so up close. So it's so probably so valuable to have these peers that you can bounce things off of and, and then just learn together. So that's really, really neat. Yeah. Cool program. But it mainly, like you talked about, like people ask you, why do you do this? If you're, if you already lost your son, but it's mainly for people that are in it now, like with addiction, with family members mm-hmm. or friends or whatever, which, yeah, you, I think you feel so helpless, I'm sure, like in it. So to have something like this to be like, okay, these people can relate with to me, they can teach me, they can educate me, they can be sad with me, they can be angry with me is just so important because the feeling alone aspect, I'm sure, is so hard. But to have a group of so many people, you said now with, you know, the Zoom capabilities and kind of spreading. It does make you think, why weren't these women spreading this all over (laughs) that started it if it was so helpful to them? It was funny when when they first said, well, we we don't know how how we would go about finding places. And I said, you don't really know much about Utah or the the LDS culture or things. I said, I could, in about 20 minutes, I could have somebody in every state in every (laughs) You know, yeah, um, that is the true. benefit of the yeah the yeah. way it's structured. I was just thinking too how cool. Like, I feel like it really speaks to you because you know it's true. Like, you you could just, which I wouldn't fault you for that either. To just kind of want to take a step back from surrounding yourself with that topic and the community. But I think it's really neat that you've found purpose there in helping other people because you can empathize with them and and you know exactly what it's like. So. Anyway, I feel and like I, that really speaks to your your character. Yeah, and I know from Karen that you um, are, are still there for those also lose their family to addiction because you look in the obituaries and see if it says, you know, I think that's how you found Karen, right? That you because Karen did the same thing. She put in the obituary that Christy died by you know an accidental overdose, and then you were there, came to her funeral, brought other women with you, and mm-hmm. really helped with, Karen with, with her Karen family. actually her her cousin is um owns open mortuary who is also my neighbor and took care of our son when he passed away and he reached out to me and he says my cousin has lost her daughter and she is really lost and um i was grateful that he that he reached out to me and so i did go to their viewing and i just gave her a hug and i had a card and with my phone number and things on it and i just said you know if there's a day that you just need someone to listen or someone you know just to go for a walk with or something an understanding um heart i i i'm here for you and and our our little group of moms has expanded and um i i mentioned my friend in singapore that reached out to me after Dane passed away. Well, just a couple weeks ago, I went to um, California to help her with the celebration of life for her son, who who did pass away from an overdose um, eight years after my son. And that was a tough day. But on the same note, I was grateful to be able to be that person for her. Um, you know, she's, I don't even know how to do this. And I says, I know, I know you don't. And I know what that feels like. Um, it took me some time, you know, I spent a really tough several months of just waking up every morning and thinking, how, how am I going to do this? This is the rest of my life. Every morning I open my eyes and I'm like, this is real. It happened. Um, you get through the period of time where you have the all of the arrangements to make and the funeral to get through and the family around and stuff. And, and you know, you're kind of in autopilot for that time. And then the quiet hits and you're, you're alone with your thoughts and you're alone with your husband and you're alone with with his things to, to deal with and, and all of that. And and I. I was a mess. And then eventually, you know, one day I just, I kind of, I woke up and I said, you know, I'm going to either be miserable and bitter for the rest of my life, or I've got to figure out what to do with this. And things just kind of lined up. And and I did, I, I feel like, you know, I know that my son has guided and inspired me many times. And, um, 
he wasn't particularly fond of me talking about his addiction when he was alive. He, he, like many other people suffering with substance use, they're very ashamed of it. They're, there's a lot of self-loathing. They're, they're not having a good time. <laughs> they would like anything yeah. but to be what they are. And it was embarrassing to him and he didn't like. And so I was always kind of afraid of how he would feel about what I'm doing now and, and the things I share. And, um, but I, I've come to a, a place of comfort and peace and, and I, I feel a great assurance that he's behind it and he helps me. I, I can't tell you how many times I've spoken to a rehab group or a gathering of women or something. And someone will come up to me afterwards and say, how did you know I needed to hear this? Or how did you know that, you know, and, and I says, I'm just the messenger. The words come and I don't know, you know, at any given time what person's going to hear something that's going to make, you know, a little tiny bit of a difference. I wanted to read you the, the program beliefs from changes just to give you kind of an overview of what we believe communities, parents and kids need to learn to support each other. We are parents and guardians and we take this honor seriously as parents. Our goal is to raise self-reliant, responsible and capable young adults by modeling self-respect, accountability and responsibility in ourselves. Healthy family interaction includes conflict. Everyone learns by doing change involves hard work that is time consuming and risky we change ourselves through a rational process of thinking, planning, and acting. Our thoughts, feelings, and behaviors are interconnected. Because grief is a part of parenting a child, we often struggle with the gap between our hopes and dreams and our current reality. Our success as a parent or person is not tied to our, our child's choices. Our support group's focus is to nurture positive change in its parents, kids, and the community. And, and what we always say is nothing changes if nothing changes. And in your situations, yeah. if you find, you know, that you're constantly rehashing the same arguments or the same things, then sometimes we have to look at a different way of, of going about that. Um, and as hard as, you know, the things that we've been through, having lost our son, there have been great blessings come into my life through the amazing people that I have met um, and the opportunities that I have had to connect and to serve communities that I, I might not have ever been associated with. And um, one of my favorite feelings, quotes, whatever you want to call it, is that every sunset is a sunrise on another horizon. So just like um, the loss of my son has definitely been a sunset, but I believe the sunrise has been his new journey and my new journey um, in, in finding the, the purpose that, that it gives me and, and finding other ways to help other people. And um, yeah. I'll just read this paragraph that I, that's kind of my. Yeah, my we loved up. how you put that. That'd be great. Okay. Okay. Today I can find joy in life still. There really isn't a moment that I don't miss him, that I don't wish his earthly outcome could have been different, and that I renew my resolve not to forget the good and the bad, to keep learning, to keep sharing, to keep hope alive. And there was a greater purpose to his life. Hope for the millions still fighting the disease of addiction, the families who love them, who struggle to understand what they can do. And just maybe something we have all learned might give one precious soul the power to win day by day. Small actions can create big rewards. Yeah, I love that. And I think you're definitely doing that with everything um, you're doing with changes. And, and I really did love that quote you shared about the new horizon because you know, it's new, it's different than what you expected and, and everything, but, but you can move on with that new horizon. And, um, I mean, not necessarily move on, but take your experiences and, 
and help other people. So I really, Mm -hmm. yeah, I really respect everything you're doing. And, um, and I wondered, so how do people get involved in changes? Could, um, they reach out to you? Maybe we should share that. Cause I, something interesting I meant to mention earlier when you were talking about this and I think Chantel kind of alluded to it, but whenever we've done, so maybe you're our third interview that has to do with addiction, but there's always a lot of great reception on interviews we've done because, because like you said, everyone has someone that they know in their Mm -hmm. family or a close friend or family member. Um, I feel like, you know, they're always high on the listens. It's just resonates with people a lot. And so I guess I just know that there's probably someone listening that this could be really helpful for. So yes, if you could share maybe how people can get a hold of you or, or get locate yeah. changes online or something, that would be awesome. Well, sure. The, um, my the email to reach me at is changes, Utah at gmail.com. And then to get to changes, the website is um, just cpsn.org. So it's, Changes Parent Support Network. So it's just the acronym CPSN.org, um, you know, www, whatever. But, um, and there's a lot of helpful information on the website. And there's also the um, phone number that you can call if you want to um, get information about joining one of the, one of the meetings. We've welcomed anyone. Okay. Awesome. And I'll put, I always do this too. When I write up the description of the podcast, I'll put the links of those in the notes if anyone's listening and didn't have time to jot that down, but all right, that's great. And thanks for being willing to let people reach out to you. My blog page, I much love from Dane's mom in Utah. So that's on Facebook. I'll include that. And if people want to know more, well, and so before we, I let you go, <laughs> we'd love to hear um, our wrap up question. If you don't mind me asking is how you find beauty in life after going through this transition. The, the beauty that I find in life is the opportunities I have every day of connecting with, with people and being able to, um, to lift the heart of someone who has, has felt like they were at the end of their rope and, and give them some, like I said, just some hope and some realization that there, that there are people out there to, to lean on. And that's amazing. Well, I'm just so grateful for you sharing your story and we're excited. Hopefully we'll get to talk to you again soon. Um, because we know you have a lot of other things that you're involved in too, that we would love to hear more about. So thank you so much for taking the time with us today. And yeah, again, if anyone wants to reach, um, reach Terry, just she's willing and changes sounds like just an amazing organization to be a part of. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening today. We hope you enjoyed this conversation and would love if you subscribed to the podcast and followed along as we continue hearing more inspiring stories. You can also follow us on Instagram at Beautiful Shifts Podcast, where we will post updates with our latest interviews. We'd like to thank the band We the Lion for giving us permission to use their beautiful song Move Along for our podcast. Take a minute to listen to the song and the lyrics and enjoy. All my thoughts are mine again And begin to understand where to go Now it's time to move along Now it's time to move along Take this journey as my own Feel the strength right in my home All I want is to believe Life is my own Life is my own I'll start again, my mind is free now I can feel the truth in me I'll take a chance, I won't be wrong Now it's time to move along Now it's time to move along Take this 